0: Welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at the Institute and your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we're joined by Mark Rucci, who is an alumnus of the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration and a senior fellow advising IPA's Recover Delaware Initiative on Inclusive Economic Development. This episode is part two of my August 17, 2020 conversation with Mark. In part one, we talked about the need for inclusive approaches to economic and social recovery in Delaware. In this part, Mark defines venture capital, outlines the seven elements of startup ecosystems, and speaks to the role of physical space in nurturing regional innovation and startup activity. Let's join the conversation in progress. On venture capital, a little more specifically, could you give us a rundown? I think people get confused, and I do. I'm a, I'll admit this on what venture capital is versus what other types of capital infusions are for businesses.
1: Absolutely, I think it's a really important question for most people. I think venture capital is a bit amorphous. I know it was for me, kind of breaking into the industry. But you know, a lot of household names for once VC-backed companies. So you know, you think of the tech boom of the last decade and a half: Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Uber all were venture-backed companies. But in the most simple terms, I think startups or companies can grow organically without taking a capital infusion from a venture capital firm. So one of my colleagues always joked that the best source of capital for a startup is a customer, uh, a paying customer. So revenue from paying customers that cover those expenses, create profits can be used for growth in a way. uh, And that's a way that many startups and small businesses choose to grow. Oftentimes this means sacrificing speed for financial sustainability, but it also allows the founder and the employees to retain ownership by not giving away equity stake in their company. So that's kind of the trade off that people think when we're going to use revenue in order to fund our growth. Another source of capital can be debt financing from a bank for some companies who have the runway to pay it off over time. And they think that's the best strategy for them. It makes complete sense. And again, You're not necessarily, in most circumstances, giving up equity in order to get that debt. Some circumstances you are, but most of the time you can retain that ownership. Uh, And then venture capital is kind of this other way for companies to take in large cash infusions in exchange for equity that really attempts to accelerate the growth of the company. So when a company takes venture capital, it is really because the company and the investors see an inflection point for growth. And they want to achieve that relatively shortly. Usually within a five to seven year time horizon. So the investment in exchange for an equity stake in the company may allow that company to make a key hire or create a new product or a new product roadmap to expand into a new city that it previously wasn't able to do because it didn't have the money to do so. So companies will often shop around to investors to find a term sheet that is palatable to the company and to the investors. Um, A lot of people joke it's like a marriage because you have to agree on this is what I'm worth. This is the amount of uh, money that I'm getting. And this is the equity stake that we are going to agree to. I don't remember that uh,
0: during the <laughs> proposal stage, but it does yeah. make sense.
1: <laughs> yeah. So this is VC marriage uh, or, yeah. or startup marriage. And it's it's important because that's kind of what you're shopping around to do. And you're committing yourselves to one another over the course of the next X or so years. So you better like your investors. They better believe in you. And hopefully the strategy that the money is funding that you laid out works, even if it needs tinkering along the way. But it's really this this quick capital infusion to really accelerate what you're doing, um, and hopefully do it much more quickly, something you were unable to finance through just revenue alone. I think it's important to also say to the listeners that VC is not for everyone or every company. I think less than 1% of all companies in the United States take venture capital. It's quite rigid. And some founders uh, don't want to necessarily become Beholden to investors who are looking to have a multiple uh, on their re- multiple return, and there are some organizations out there trying to educate first-time founders as to whether or not venture capital is right for them and their business. So I would not use VC as the be-all and end-all of a healthy startup ecosystem. Not every company who's out there, you know, who's starting needs to have the goal of raising outside capital, but I think it needs to be a component of an ecosystem. If it's non-existent in a region or a state. I think I'm afraid the ecosystem probably will not be dynamic enough to create a flywheel effect and spin companies up and out and recycle that capital to the next generation of founders.
0: So that statistics of less than 1% brings me to something that I thought of when you were talking about these startups that really grow the economy over time and are net job creators. They're very rare, frankly. I, you know, And you see terms... Thrown out there like unicorns and gazelles, they're the one you want to focus on, uh, but that takes a lot of discipline because they're not just you know there's not herd of gazelles or mm-hmm. herd of unicorns out there for everyone to take their pick, and people vote in a in a democratic society, and so discipline when it comes to favoring a smaller group of companies is is a challenge, I think. And I'm getting to a question here, which is Mm -hmm. that rise of the rest has made kind of a firm based decision that we're going to focus on, uh, these different regions. And there's a value there, both, both a profit motive, but also kind of a mission to explore these new solutions in different places outside of those three regions you talked about. But then, you know, thinking from the regional perspective, how do you think regions can overcome that, you know, tendency to kind of focus on what's already there? versus these smaller subset of startups? And what more generally, what are the ways that regions can uh, make themselves more attractive to these venture capital funds? That was a long-winded question, but I'm interested in your response.
1: I think it's a great question. Um, I will start off by addressing the the idea of unicorns being rare. That is exactly why that term has been applied, is because they are rare. So Mm -hmm. unicorn um, conveys this idea of a billion dollar company, a company valued at more than a billion dollars. Um, usually venture back startup company. And what I will say just to kind of start is that for Rise of the Rest, what we found so powerful is what makes cities unique and interesting and special. So, what we are not advocating for is that cities and regions in the middle of the country or places like Delaware are not trying to replicate Silicon Valley or replicate New York City in Boston, because that is not going to work for them. It's this, you know, trying to, again, copy and paste is not necessarily going to work when you're trying to do it at an ecosystem level. So, you know, you have to really understand what made and gave your city or region rise, what happened or what kind of inflection point maybe put it on the wrong path. And what um, traditional, you know, strengths and assets does it have now that you can double down on in order to set it on this new path for the 21st century. So, for Rise of the Rest, we think about that at an ecosystem level. It's you know when we look for investable opportunities, we are looking at an ecosystem. And to us, a strong, healthy ecosystem has seven components that we think all need to be firing on some some type of wavelength. They don't all have to be you know ten out of ten rock star, unbelievably strong industries, but they should be relatively there, present, and we can have a conversation about them and look to some strategy behind them. So. If I could just quickly, Troy, if you don't mind, kind of touch on those seven, I think it'll be helpful to understand how we think about a region. Mm -hmm. So that first kind of, I'll call it a a spoke of the startup hub, if we're we're thinking of it that way, are incubators, accelerators, and startup support organizations. So I think it's extremely important to have individuals and organizations in each ecosystem who are working directly with entrepreneurs and startups uh, as their full-time role. These, you know, incubators are for helping founders get the idea, of, you know, from the back of a napkin to a minimum viable product or a prototype. You have accelerators, which are kind of the next level who are working directly with companies who have some revenue, who have some customers, and they really need to refine what they're doing before they go out to raise some money. Uh, these can be affiliated with a university. They can be nonprofits. They can be for profit and, you know, take an equity stake in the company. But there needs to be a critical mass of these resources that entrepreneurs can turn to for help. And it needs to be clear which organization helps for which stage or which industry of company. They can't all be doing the same thing, all trying to help really early stage companies or all trying to help FinTech companies. There needs to be a critical mass that are helping companies at different stages and industries. And I've been in ecosystems where these resources barely existed. And the entrepreneurs felt as though they were in it on their own. So their likelihood of picking up and packing up and getting out is high. And then I've been in ecosystems where there were so many startup support organizations that it became kind of a situation, a paradox of choice, where you didn't know where to go, you couldn't make a decision, and the quality was really lacking. So I think a healthy mix is important, uh, whether they be a homegrown startup support org, or a national brand like 500 Startups or Techstars. So that's kind of that first spoke. The second is on investors. So it's probably intuitive, but investors are looking for other investors in an ecosystem and a wide range and type of investors. So an ecosystem should have those early stage angel investors who can write smaller checks to help companies de-risk what they're doing and get off the ground. Uh, these can be organized or somewhat unorganized. When I say organized versus unorganized, I mean, you know, there's a person that I go to because I know he or she really knows business, really knows tech, really knows startups and can write a check. Or there are formal organizations where someone or some group is organizing all of those individuals for regular meetings and pitch competitions and sessions so that their checks can be more kind of deliberate. And then, uh, you know, investors are also looking for more institutional funds that exist that can help a company get through uh, larger rounds and raises of capital seed and Series A. So those local investors really often know the companies very well. They know the history of the city. Uh, they help localize an outside investor like R- Rise of the Rest, which is based in Washington, D.C., to help us get to know the region. Most importantly, uh, they know who the jerks are uh, and the companies that we shouldn't be working with. And I think you know where we need to steer ourselves away. And I've been really impressed with angel networks like Miami Angels in South Florida. There's a great group called Accelerate Venture Partners in Wichita, Kansas which have been able to educate potential investors as to why investing in startups is a benefit to the community and potentially a smart investment because Troy as i'm sure you know there are a lot of people and investors that are just more comfortable investing in traditional asset classes like real estate for example because they understand it they get it their friends invest that way uh, but when you say i want you to invest in some software company where you can't really touch it or see it or understand it sure you just get much more nervous. And I think trying to educate investors as to thinking, well, there's just as much risk investing in an early stage software company these days as there is investing in a real estate venture on the outskirts of town. So why not try to think about the benefits of investing in that technology company for your city? The third bucket is uh, colleges and universities, as you know a lot about. I think uh, they can serve two main functions, one being technology transfer. So how does the school help commercialize important technology, get it into the hands of people who can scale it and commercialize it? And the other is uh, creating talent pipelines. How does the school find ways to connect its students who want to work in high growth startups to those companies? I think it's important always to remember that you don't have to be the founder of a company to be an entrepreneur. You can be employee number seven. Uh, at a startup and really get that that startup and entrepreneur experience. So we need to find ways not to lose students who come to a region for school, but then they leave because they're pulled by a big company elsewhere. And I think you know Carnegie Mellon is a great example in Pittsburgh that, that is a great example of both of these assets that universities can play.
0: Two things there. One would be University of Pittsburgh is great too. I'm an alum of the University of Pittsburgh. So I have Absolutely. to throw that in there. Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon's good too. I would say a lot of people think you have to be a a tech person or a finance person to be in the startup world. Mm. And I've definitely heard that, well, there's all types of people in these startups. There's people with just the idea. There's people who are engineers. There's people who help get you through government regulatory processes. So these people come from all majors, not just business and engineering. And, you know, I think it's worth thinking about. And I'm glad I'm heartened to see entrepreneurship programs that are focused that way. At the whole university, rather than just business, or rather than just engineering.
1: Completely agree, Troy. And I think it's important to hammer that point home. What you will realize is that working for a, in a startup, um, you're going to wear many hats, and it's not necessarily going to be the hat for which you were hired. You know, I feel like a lot of people can can empathize with that statement. But you know, you need people who are have an art and design background, who are creative types, who can help tell the story of the company. You need people, like you said, in the policy side of the world who can help the company navigate regulatory challenges because they're going to be unable to hire lawyers and lobbyists in order to help get them through those regulatory challenges. So you need to be able to navigate that. You will need business and finance. You'll need individuals who are really focused on operations and talking to customers and figuring out what the customers liked and didn't like. And then you're going to have to have the visionary types who are really looking at what is this company going to look like in 3-5 to years and how is that different from where we are right now and what we're uh, executing on. So. Startups are a really cool place to get really interesting experience coming out of school. And if that's something that interests you, I would, you know, go to, you know, a place like at UD, which is the Horn Entrepreneurship Center, but also just figure out who in the community is working in those early stage companies and have a conversation with them. Uh, they may be working on something that could be groundbreaking or they may be trying to disrupt a very traditional player that and try to take them down, which is an interesting and exciting thing to get a part of.
0: I interrupted your list, but we had startup support organizations, number one, investors, number two, and colleges and universities, number three. So where are you taking us next, Mark?
1: I I will promise to land the plane soon. Um, (laughs) So so government, uh, number four. So policymakers and elected leaders can play a huge role in startup ecosystems. I've seen some innovative things come out of Colorado, where the state repurposed revenue from a toll road to be invested into a venture fund that was then focused on rural Colorado companies, which I found fascinating. In Boise, Idaho, the city government rented uh, an abandoned building in the downtown core for nearly free to a local incubator and startup week group who was having trouble finding affordable physical space. Um, I think they rented it for you know a dollar a month. I've seen elected officials serve as conveners, which I think is free and also should be highly encouraged among your elected leaders. Oftentimes I'll hear, Potential investors claim they don't know where to find the entrepreneurs. And then I'll talk to the entrepreneurs and they'll say, uh, we there are no investors to fund our companies. And it's kind of like both of these things can be true at the same time. So having the governor or the mayor regularly bring these groups together to the table to meet and learn from each other, I think can create interesting collisions that may lead to investment. And this happened in Oklahoma. Uh, the governor created a venture advisory council that was made up of high net worth individuals that could be investors exciting young companies who needed funding and mentorship, and then startup support organizations who could help bridge the gap and make that happen. And I think that's a really interesting role for governments to play. The next piece, the the fifth spoke and the seven spoke hub is tent pole companies. I like to describe these as what are the success stories of the city that you can point to? And it elicits a sense that, hey, you can build an incredible company here. My favorite story is uh, from Birmingham. There's a company called SHIP which you may be familiar with, which is highly useful during a pandemic. Um, but it was the on-demand grocery delivery service that was founded in Birmingham. Well, a couple of years ago, SHIPT was acquired by Target, I think for around $300 million. And SHIPT was able to negotiate to keep its headquarters in Birmingham after that acquisition. And it's located in one of the coolest, largest buildings in downtown Birmingham. It has hundreds of employees. And it serves as this example that, hey, you can build it in Birmingham. And the founder of Shift has gone on to become an angel investor in other Alabama startups. And it's created this flywheel effect and culture of entrepreneurship within the community. And I think investors are looking for those success stories. Uh, and of course, to create more of them. But those are something that really draws you in. The sixth uh, spoke is corporations. So which large corporate players are located in your ecosystem? And how do they engage with the startup community? Do their senior executives mentor young companies? Are they con- customers of startups, which can hugely change the trajectory of a young company, that, that first customer? Are they investors or potential acquirers of that company? All of those things I think corporates can play. Uh, Minneapolis is a great example here. You have Target, which is headquartered in Minneapolis, partners with Techstars, the uh, accelerator I was talking about earlier, and they actually run a program for companies interested in retail. So if you have one of the biggest retail players in the world coupled with a great startup support organization, In Minneapolis, where you are blocks away from Target's headquarters, a lot of special things can happen there. So, I think thinking about who your corporate players are really important. And then the last piece is media. So, who are the people or organizations that are telling the story of entrepreneurship in your community? I think storytelling is very powerful, not only for investors looking to learn about what's going on in an ecosystem, but it also tells people within that city that it's possible here, and we're gonna celebrate your success when it happens. Cities like Salt Lake City and Miami have done very well at this storytelling piece. So those are not an exhaustive list. They're not a must-have list. But I think they cover a lot of the basis of what investors are looking for when putting capital to work. And that's how we at Rise of the Rest, when I was there, really thought about a city before engaging in it. We wanted to make sure we were having conversations with and understood the strengths and challenges of each one of those 7 buckets.
0: Yeah. I mean, the ecosystem approach, you know, in one way that's calming. It's like, there's not uh one thing you need to do. It's that you need to tend this garden over time and nurture it and grow it and make sure you're, you're, you're making investments in each of those seven areas. In another way, it's, it's overwhelming because <laughs> there's not just a switch you can flip. Uh It's not one person's job, but it is, you know, that, when it's a distributed job, it's it's finding the players and and bringing them to the table and continuing to bring them to the table, uh, mm-hmm. which is the challenge and hopefully the opportunity of of approaching it from an ecosystem perspective.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think that's completely right. It's shared responsibility. One of the the other points that I think is important, you know, the reason that Silicon Valley and New York City have been so successful in creating these new startups. Uh, is because the density and the frequency with which those entrepreneurs, investors, and ideas, all seven of those buckets are colliding with each other on a regular basis. So there's this culture of risk-taking and fearlessness that has served a purpose there for the last several decades. Um I'm definitely not advocating for that in places like Delaware to replicate the culture exactly. But I think more so to look at the components of the ecosystems that blend well, like I said earlier... With the existing strengths in order to usher in this new wave of job creation and inclusive economic development. And, you know, between me and you, I think, you know, and the listeners, now that I remember we're on a podcast, <laughs> uh, I think there needs Good to be try, a shift. To, yeah, I think there needs to be a shift away from the mindset of, you know, stop the bleeding and leaving of jobs. And how can we convince company X to uproot itself and relocate here for a tax break? And we need to think more toward how do we find the promising young entrepreneur in Wilmington or Milford? and help her take her idea to scale with a set of resources and mentors that were put in place for that very reason. And for all we know, she could create the next DuPont and employ thousands of Delawareans in a decade or less. And I think that is the strategy that is going to pay dividends for communities that put all the the, the right resources in place, as opposed to a kind of very outdated economic development strategy.
0: Yeah, And one of those ecosystem spokes that you mentioned was But innovators, accelerators and the support organizations. And I I think you see that implemented in a lot of places through physical investments. So we're going to have a startup space or an innovation lab. And I know you spent some time looking at those at rise of the rest. Uh, so I'm curious about kind of two things here. What have you seen other cities and regions done that's really had value? Because we want to avoid just kind of copying things that look nice, but didn't result in good outcomes. And then how do you think? The pandemic might change the calculus of of these physical investments because we're talking to each other from our homes right now, and a lot of people are working from home right now. So, what might that look like? These spaces for innovation and in startups.
1: Sure, and I'm sure my answer um, five months ago would be different than the answer I give now, given kind of the role that physical space plays in 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 where we're at as a society. But I think you know one of the things our team was interested in about a year ago was the role that, like you said, physical space plays in startup ecosystems. It's a very you know, specific question. How does the creation and, and, and use of physical space enhance a startup ecosystem, particularly in Rise of the Rest Cities, if you want to get even more specific? And we were curious because we knew that one of the things that these really great ecosystems had before COVID was the density of the ecosystem and the places in which these entrepreneurs were constantly colliding with each other because that allows for the creation of new ideas and new companies. And one thing that you'll hear a lot is density helps foster innovation, and that's the density of people and ideas. So we set out to identify what that looked like in our target markets and arrived at a framework with kind of four categories. Uh, there, there are anchor tenants. There are innovation districts. There are vertically integrated spaces, and there are work, live, play districts. And, you know, in order to save some time, anyone can go read that whole playbook and look at examples of each at revolution.com slash playbook. But I'll focus on a couple of them now. Uh, but I think they're all interesting. So uh, my prediction on what the pandemic will mean for physical space you know, is as good as anyone's right now. But my hunch is that we'll see an exodus from Class A real estate and office buildings, more toward home offices and more remote work setups. Again, not that, you know, crazy of an assumption right now. Uh, but we'll also see a huge number of employees who want to leave places like San Francisco and New York and hunker down in Boulder or Durham or Milwaukee or Indianapolis. So I think get ready for that as you see people kind of, you know, cutting ties on their leases and they're selling their homes and leaving places that are very expensive and don't necessarily yield a great quality of life uh, in terms of some, some metrics. So one of the models that we identified that I talked about is the workload play model where developers and urban planners We'll have to get a lot more creative in blending together private and public spaces where individuals can live, work either remotely or in some type of new traditional office space, and then enjoy amenities such as dining, shopping, nature, the arts and culture. And so gone are these days of you know, throwing up office parks and high-rise buildings to house us for 9 hours each day. I think that is going to totally disappear in a lot of places. So 2 communities in Florida that really did this work-live-play model well have both um, prioritized health as well, which I think is interesting, uh, as well as pedestrian access. So one is the Tampa Bay Waterfront Project, uh, led by Jeff Vinnick and Bill Gates. It's a really interesting example of a complete redevelopment of a city's waterfront that emphasizes uh, places to live, physical uh, outdoor activity, personal wellness, um, but also thinking about entrepreneurship, and how that plays into that community. So they actually built out an entrepreneur support organization called Embark Collective, which is helping to accelerate companies that want to build and scale in Tampa, but also take advantage of this really great, robust waterfront living that is that is open to people who, who move to Tampa. And so I think you're actually going to see Tampa Bay Area start luring entrepreneurs from Atlanta, uh, from parts of Texas, possibly even as far as the West Coast of, of individuals who want to relocate, because of the amenities that it's creating and the culture that it's fostering there, like I said, prioritizing the work, live, and the play. And then the second one is also in, in Florida. It's in Lake Nona, uh, which is in or- right outside Orlando. And it's a really interesting wellness community uh, that's integrated with fiber internet. And it's attempted to build homes that improve wellness and well-being through the lighting and air filtration and heating and all these interesting kind of things that we don't necessarily think about all the time. But then it's also created community infrastructure, such as broadband access, uh, access to uh, low-cost, affordable childcare, healthcare that's right on site, and it enables the residents to kind of live more full and productive lives. So they've tried to basically say, if you want access to be able to do your work from anywhere in the world, we're going to make sure you have that with great broadband infrastructure. But then also, we're going to make sure that you really are living and thriving in a healthy way in this community. And I think that's an interesting kind of juxtaposition that we don't always see next to each other. Usually we have to pick one or the other connectedness or kind of connected to nature and and your health. And so that innovation is happening all across the country. Those are two examples, but I think there are tons of examples across the country. And I think being very thoughtful about future physical developments is what Delaware should really be focusing on so that they're not trying to create things that worked pre-pandemic.
0: For more information on Mark and his work on IPA's Recover Delaware Initiative, visit ipa.udel.edu to review Mark's biography and navigate to the Recovered Delaware page. Thanks again for tuning in to First State Insights. Reach out with any comments and be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. I hope you'll join us again soon.